Well, I'd be grateful if you turn with me in your Bibles to uh, two places. Firstly, Acts chapter 2. And we've been focusing on one of the verses in Acts uh, Acts 2.42 over the last few weeks. Uh, Let me read Acts chapter 2 from 42 onwards. And then also you may want to put your finger in John chapter 6. Uh, ready for quick access since before Acts. <laughs> I was looking in the wrong place. So let me read from Acts chapter 2. And they, these 3,000 souls that were baptized and, and added to the church, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came on every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and 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 belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple... Together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. And then if you turn with me to uh, John chapter 6 and uh, allow me to, uh, to read from verse 31. John 6, verse 31. Jesus is teaching his disciples, and uh, he says, Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Amen. May God bless. Oh, sorry, one more Subsection. So, uh, verse 47. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Amen. I should read my own notes. <laughs> so early, earlier this month, we began looking at how uh, the first disciples became uh, devoted disciples. And there was quite a transformation that happened when uh, these 
uh, these people were converted. So when Peter preached the gospel to them, so you see that in Acts chapter 2 on this day of Pentecost, uh, Peter preaches the gospel and he gives them a survey of the, the Old Testament, if you like, leading up to Jesus. And uh, he preaches to them. And uh, at the end of the sermon, the, the great crowds, they're, they're cut to the heart and they cry out to Peter and the others. They say, brothers, what must we do to be saved? And uh, the answer is, of course, repent, be baptized, and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And that transformation that happened to them was not just a one-off experience, but it became the, the basis for them being devoted disciples. Everything changed for them. And they gave themselves, that devotion expressed itself in certain activities uh, that they committed themselves to. And so we've seen, so the first couple of Sundays in September, uh, we looked at how they were devoted to the apostles' teaching, first of all. That apostolic teaching that's been brought to the churches and continues to this day, uh, the apostolic preaching of the gospel. And the reason that it is so important to be devoted to it, and it, it wells up from within because of the transformation that's happened, It's because the Holy Spirit comes, Christ comes by his Holy Spirit into the midst of the preaching. And so that when you have, uh, you know, somebody like me who's standing at the front, a poor sinner who is uh, a jar of clay and very limited and sinful, nonetheless, the promise is that Christ comes by his Spirit and preaches to our hearts, even even the preacher. Christ is in the midst of us. So, you can see how important it is to to be in the assembled congregation. So, the the second thing they were devoted to was fellowship. Uh, And so, to meet with other Christians uh, became to these early Christians uh, a precious time. And they were committed to it and they believed in it. And and we believe in it too. As we noted last time, We say once a month, I believe in the communion of saints. And we'll say it later. I believe in the communion of saints. I believe in it. You're a Christian today and you say that with us. You're committing yourself to fellowship with your brothers and sisters. And committing yourself to assembling with your brothers and sisters. To join with this fellowship. So... That was two of the things. Here's the third thing we're going to look at uh, today. They devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. And I have to admit I have a little bit of fear and trepidation because parts of this will be a little bit technical. So you need to gird up the loins of your mind, as it were, and uh, stick with me. I hope you can stick with me. It'll be a little bit technical uh, today, perhaps. Maybe you, you won't think so, but I hope not, but... Uh, We'll press on and see what happens. So this phrase, the breaking of bread, refers to the habit that began in the early church uh, of of sharing a simple meal together. Now, what kind of meal was it? I think if you survey the uh, the teaching of Scripture, 
Uh, you'll see that there are two uh, definite strands to it. One was simply uh, sharing ordinary meals together. They just get together and have dinner together. And uh, I think you see that in verse uh, in Acts chapter two, uh, verse 40, uh, 46. Day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. I think that's referring just to how they just got together. And they shared dinner together and they shared meals together. And they just had a wonderful time together. It's such a blessing, isn't it? To meet with brothers and sisters and just share a meal together. It's one of the values I think we want to encourage in this church. Is people opening up their homes and sharing meals together. And I hope that you do that. I hope you think carefully how you're going to use your home for the blessing of God's people. So that's one strand of it. But the other strand of this breaking of bread is a more formal act of remembrance. Uh, A special meal with religious significance and full of symbolism. Where the bread represents the body of Christ and the the wine represents the, the blood of Christ. And so the whole eating of the, the, the bread and the wine is somehow sharing in the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're uniting with Christ in his death and his resurrection. We are uh, expressing our identity as Christians in joining together in taking this particular meal. And this is what the, the early disciples became devoted to. Apostles' teaching to fellowship and the breaking of bread. And that practice still continues today. Some churches call it, call it, still call it a breaking of bread. If you're, you know the Christian brethren, they talk about a breaking of bread, don't they? And uh, certainly in the west of Scotland, when I was a young Christian, uh, they talk about, you're going to the breaking of bread. <laughs> and, uh, and so on. Some call it communion. Yeah. Certainly in Presbyterian circles, we tend to call it communion. It's part of the fellowship together. We're communing with each other and with the Lord uh, together. The Anglicans call it the Eucharist, the thanksgiving. Um, It is an act of thanksgiving for all that Christ has done for us. Some just call it the Lord's Supper. We often in this church call it the Lord's Supper uh, because, because Jesus started it. Now, all of those are valid, and I don't have any particular uh, 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 criticism of any of, any of that. Um, in fact, uh, all of it is useful in just explaining what it is we're doing. But let's think for a moment where this meal then comes from. So I want to just do a quick survey of Scripture, and I'll try and be quick. So you may remember from your Bibles that Jesus gathered with his disciples uh, the night before Jesus died, and he, and he shared a meal with the twelve disciples. Now, it's in the, in the week before Passover, that Jewish festival, uh, and the Passover meal was to be eaten on the Friday. You got that? It's on the Friday. So when Jesus meets with his disciples, he's actually meeting on the Thursday night. Thursday evening and overnight, Jesus is arrested and taken away uh, and then put uh, to death on the cross on Friday, Good Friday. 
And uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all describe uh, this meal that they took together. John doesn't quite describe it, but it is the setting for a great deal of teaching from John 13 to John 16, uh, where he deals primarily about the Trinity, (laughs) Father, Son, Holy Spirit. But in that meal, what was going on? What was happening? Well, many assume that Jesus was sharing the Passover meal with his disciples. Here's here's a slight problem with that. I think it's quite a big problem with that. It's the night before. It's the day of preparation for the Passover, the following day. So Jesus is, I don't think he's taking the Passover meal. I think he's just having a meal with his brothers, the disciples. And so some scholars think, and I I, I personally agree with them in this, that Jesus, this is simply a gathering before the main event, and the main event is the true Passover, Jesus himself coming as the Passover lamb. So, You know, the Jews would celebrate the Passover ceremony looking backwards to the Exodus, Exodus chapter 12. And they would repeat it and remember the salvation from Israel. But Jesus is coming as the true Passover lamb, which was signified in that Old Testament uh, ritual. He's coming in reality. And he is going to die so that the people can go free. So the Passover is yet to happen. And it's going to happen the next day in reality as Jesus is taken to the cross. So if, it's not the, so if Jesus was not having the Passover meal on Thursday night, what was he doing? Well, let me suggest this. The meal that Jesus is having with his 12 disciples has more, is more akin, is more akin to the meal that Moses had with Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu and the 70 elders on Mount Sinai in Exodus 24. So Exodus 20, remember the Ten Commandments and lots of other laws. And at the end of the giving of the laws, there is a covenant commitment ceremony that takes place where a peace offering is made, a burnt offering is made, the blood is taken, and it is scattered over the assembled body of people, Israel. And then Moses goes with his relations and the 70 elders. He climbs the mountain and eats a meal before the face of God. This is what I think Jesus is doing now with the 12 disciples. And the connection between the two is quite striking. Exodus 24, 8, Moses says, as he scatters the blood over the people, he says, behold, the blood of the covenant. What does Jesus say as he holds up the cup? Representing his blood. He says, this is my blood of the covenant. So you get a symbolic blood of the covenant in the Old Testament. 
the true blood of the covenant is coming in Jesus. My blood. And I think that's important for something that we're going to say later. That we mustn't think that this meal is a Passover meal, but rather it's reenacting the meal of Moses. So that's, that's what I think is going on in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Let me just mention a second passage. I'll only mention it. We'll read it later. Um, is 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23 onwards. And there Paul is teaching the church in Corinth uh, about what to do uh, with the Lord's Supper, how to do it. He's teaching the pattern that Jesus passed on to him And is now and established in the upper room. But Paul is, is passing it on now to the churches. So this is now going beyond the elders, the, the, the twelve disciples. Now to all the churches and say, all the churches are to, to share in this meal together until he comes, until Jesus comes again. So it's to be the forever pattern of the Christian church to share the meal together. Uh, as Jesus instituted it. So that's the second passage. The third passage is the one we read from John, John's Gospel, which we read earlier. And it's a strange passage because Jesus is talking about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. It doesn't sound very palatable, does it? Uh, there were those in the first century who thought Christians were cannibals because <laughs> they're eating blood and drinking blood and eating flesh. But of course, Jesus is using a metaphor. The metaphor attached to eating bread in anticipation of the church needing to remember his death, the breaking of his body, and of the shedding of his blood. And what, what John, John 6 teaches us is, that the disciples of Jesus will eat and drink wine together, but in doing so, somehow, it connects those believers to the body and blood of Jesus. And all that was achieved by it, by his break, the breaking of his body and the shedding of his blood. So, three passages of Scripture, a quick survey of Scripture. So let me address this question now. What is the Lord's Supper? What are we doing with the Lord's Supper? And let me say four things about it. Um, I could say more, but I've got to limit my time. Four things to say about the Lord's Supper. And I'm drawing here from our confessional standards. So Westminster Confession 27.1 and Westminster Larger Catechism 177. Go on, look it up. (laughs) I'll give you the references later. But let me just... So these summarize really what we think Scripture says about these things. So four things. First of all, it is a sign and a seal of the covenant of grace given by God. Now I think as signs, they're clear. Uh, the bread represents the body of Christ. The, the wine represents the blood of Christ. And as we take it, as we receive it, We remember all that the bread and wine signify. Uh, 
the sacrificial death of Jesus for the sins of his people. And it's, it's this that is at the core of the covenant relationship God has made with his people. There can only be reconciliation between a holy God and sinful people if you have this mediator, Jesus Christ, in the middle, bringing together the parties that are at enmity with each other and dealing with the sin problem. And that's what Jesus has done through his body and blood. And it's also a seal. So, so the bread and wine are signs, but they're also seals. I've talked about seals before. They are given to us to confirm something to us. The truth of what is said to us. So all it, all it does is when we take it, it's more than just an idea general, applied, which is generally out there, that Jesus died for sinners. But when you take it as a sinner, you know that, and you believe and you're trusting in Jesus Christ, you know that Jesus has died for you. It becomes personal. It becomes a confirming seal to your faith. So it's a, it's a sign and seal of the covenant of grace. Secondly, it follows that the, the bread and wine represents Christ and his benefits. Everything that he is and everything that he has achieved for us in dying for our sins is communicated to us. Uh, and it's communicated through the, the means of physical things. It's physically, tangibly, through our senses, it is communicated to us. Christ, sorry, Christ is communicated to us and all his benefits. So it's not just eating bread and wine. It's not just an empty thing. Christ is doing something in the midst of it through these symbols. Third thing to say, the bread and the wine confirms our interest in him. In other words, when a believer receives the bread and wine, the act of taking it is supposed to operate in such a way as to confirm to us that all that God has said about Jesus is true and applies to us. It's received, in other words, by faith, and it strengthens our faith as we take it. Fourth thing, and this is a question about how it relates to baptism. So baptism signs and is a sign and seal as well, but it signs and seals the start of the Christian life. It signifies regeneration by the Holy Spirit and of your grafting into Christ like, like you're a branch that's grafted into a tree. Uh, that's what baptism signifies. But the Lord's Supper uh, marks the continuation of the Christian life. And so the, uh, if you want an analogy, baptism is, signifies a birth and the Lord's Supper signifies the ongoing feeding in life. You see? So that's the four things. It's a really simple meal, and yet I've only touched on the rich significance of what we're doing 
when we take the bread and the wine. But when you grasp the gospel and all that Jesus has done, and you see how Jesus Christ has saved you, and what he now holds out for you, if only you will believe in him, then you will see what a wonderful thing it is to take the bread and the wine. And so perhaps you can begin to see how it is that the early church became devoted to it. It became this uh, living reality that Jesus Christ has died for them as they take the bread and the wine. And they became committed to it, as committed to it as hearing the preaching and of sharing fellowship with one another. Because the, the sharing of the bread and the wine brought them closer to their risen, reigning, heavenly Lord Jesus Christ. Is that too technical for you? Are you still with me? <laughs> You're still with me. Good. Let me just ask a couple more questions. Firstly, who should take it? Who should take the bread and the wine? And of course, if it's true that baptism is the sign of the start of the Christian life and the Lord's Supper is the sign of the continuing as a Christian, then of course, anyone who has not been baptized should not take the supper. You see? You cannot enjoy life until you've been born. In the same, by analogy, you should be baptized first before you, are, you take the Lord's Supper. So you shouldn't take the Lord's Supper if you're not baptized. But you'd be amazed how often that can happen in a church. Um, it's happened in this church. I, we've had people come uh, and join with us when we're in, in another building. And uh, we once had some folks uh, who started to, came, came to, to visit us and with us a number of weeks. And they started taking the Lord's Supper it was only afterwards I had a conversation with them and uh, asked them when they had joined a church, when they had been baptized, when they had professed faith, and none of, quite a few of them had not done that. And so we had a slightly difficult conversation about, well, you shouldn't really be taking the Lord's Supper at this point until we've resolved those questions. So if you're here today and you're not baptized, then... Please don't take the Lord's Supper until you have been. I mean, we mean no offense to you. We don't, uh, we're not casting you out or anything like that. We're just saying there's a right order to things. So take it, take things in the right order. At the very least, you need to be baptized. But a follow-up question to that question is, so what about our children? Uh, Should they take the supper with their parents? After all, we baptize our babies, the babies of our believers, as well as adults. Uh, so do we practice pedo-communion or child communion in this church? And, you know, there, is, there are traditions in the Christian world that uh, do do that. Um, the Eastern Orthodox Church has always practiced pedo-communion. Uh, and the West has a growing awareness of its, uh, this practice as a result. And increasingly over the years, there's been a growing number of people in reformed, the Reformed and Presbyterian tradition who have uh, made a case for giving communion to children, uh, you know, infants. 
And the, if I use a technical term here, the biblical theological justification being on the basis of it being the Passover meal. So the argument goes, the Passover meal included the children in the Old Testament. So therefore, the Lord's Supper in the New Testament should include the children. That's how they, they will generally argue. There are other arguments, but that's one of the biblical arguments. And so they will ask, why is it that New Testament children, children in the New Testament should not take it? And that's a reasonable question. But the analogy is wrong. I, I pointed out earlier, I don't think the Lord's Supper is a, is a reenactment of the Passover. It's a reenactment of Moses meeting with the 70 elders and some others. And I think that's, that's important. The, the argument falls down. Instead, the way that the Reformed have argued the case is that when we come to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, there are other qualifications to taking the Lord's Supper. And I'll explain what those are in a second. The simple fact is that from John Calvin onwards in the Reformation, uh, Presbyterian Reformed churches have not given the Lord's Supper to children until there is evidence, clear evidence of faith, repentance, and the ability to examine yourself. That comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And if you don't have faith, or you don't repent of your sins, if you can't examine yourself, then you're coming to the supper in an unworthy fashion. And Paul gives a very strong warning that you eat and drink judgment on yourself if you do that. And therefore, it is an act of love to withhold the supper from our children until they have openly professed faith, repented of our sins, and know how to examine their own hearts. That's why the, the confession, or the, the confessional standards, make it quite explicit. So, Larger Catechism 177 says, The Lord's Supper is to be administered often, and that only to such are as of years and ability to examine themselves. Couldn't be clearer. So there's, in Reformed and Presbyterian churches, there's always been a need not only for people to be baptized, but also to be able to give a credible profession of faith. In other words, to be able to give an account of their faith that shows that they have some knowledge of themselves and their need to repent and their need to come to Christ. So let me just speak to the children in the church. I know you're probably lost now. But if I can speak to the children who have been baptized, but have not yet taken the Lord's Supper, that's the reason why you're not able to take the Lord's Supper just yet. You've been baptized, but we have not seen the evidence that you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you repent of your sin, and you know yourself. You have the ability to examine yourself. Now, if you want to come and take the Lord's Supper, then by all means, come and talk to me or Elder Falco or Elder Johnny at the back. Uh, Talk to one of the elders and we'll have a conversation with you. 
don't send your parents. <laughs> it's got to be you. I want you to come because I want to know that you have this living faith in Jesus Christ. All right? So that's a word to our, our children. And uh, I, I assure you, as elders, we don't bite much. Last question. We're nearly finished. When should we take the Lord's Supper? How often should we take the Lord's Supper? There is actually no Bible verse that explicitly states how often the Lord's Supper should be taken by a church. And all sorts of traditions have emerged, largely it seems to me, for practical reasons. For example, in the the background I came from in Scotland, west of Scotland, Presbyterian, uh, they observe the Lord's Supper four times a year, once every three months. Uh, and that's largely for historical reasons. Uh, there weren't enough ministers to go around, and it had to be done by a minister. Uh, there weren't enough resources to feed everybody, because uh, Scotland was poor. Uh, so they settled on f- once every four, uh, three months. And that's the tradition that's become solidified in the Church of Scotland uh, and in other uh, similar denominations. Uh, John Calvin argued for a weekly Lord's Supper though he was overruled and uh, he couldn't persuade everyone uh, to his way of thinking. And so he settled for once a month. That's what our practice is here in this church. Uh, Not because of Calvin, but for perhaps other reasons. Uh, So my own view on this is 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 that while there is no clincher verse, so there may not be a clincher verse, but that never stops you making good and necessary inferences from scripture logical deductions from scripture it's very important you do that you'd never have the doctrine of the trinity if you didn't but so my view is this that while there's no clincher verse that gives explicit direction I, I believe that from verse 42 that whenever the disciples gathered to hear the word of God preached in the gathered assembly they also broke bread seems to me as clear as night follows day. And it seems to me to be perfectly natural for a church to follow the sermon with the Lord's Supper. In other words, it seems to me that the the weekly observance of the Lord's Supper, Supper ought to be the norm unless there are practical reasons hindering it. Now, some people argue that if you have it too often, it will become routine It'll become humdrum. It'll lose its significance. What a strange argument. (laughs) Do we say that about anything else that we love? Do we say it about the preaching? Oh, we can't have too much preaching. Just once a month will be fine. We can do it, and then it'll be really special. What about prayer? We'll just pray once a month. Because we want it to be really special. Or what about singing? You know, the same argument. Or for that matter, what about spending time with your wife or your husband? I love you so much, 
I find it so wonderful to be with you, but I don't want to spoil it by having it too often. So I'll only meet with you once a month, dear. I mean, honestly, it's such a weird argument. Have I convinced you yet? I hope so. That's something for the elders to think about. We haven't decided this question yet. So apologies, brothers, for dumping this on you. But uh, we will discuss it. Though maybe not tomorrow, but we will discuss it at some point. Devoted to the breaking of bread. Are you devoted to it? Do you love it? Are you willing to see it not just as a nice to have, but an important part of your Christian life, a means of grace to you? By all means, join with us today if you're a baptized believing Christian. But let's also make it a priority in our lives. And let's devote ourselves to it. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your wonderful word. And uh, we thank you for the, the supper too. That it continually reminds us and lifts our, enables us to lift our hearts up to God by your spirit. As we take the bread and the wine and remember his death and resurrection. So Father, we pray that you continue with us. And as we take the Lord's Supper... Lord, would you encourage us in Jesus' name. Amen.